Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the live edition of Monitor Monday. There's an important court fight on the horizon that's likely to impact your facility. It's about the use and abuse of observation of patient status. Reporting our lead story this morning will be the founder for the Center of Medicare Advocacy, Judith Stein. In other news, a new program for home health was announced last week by CMS. William Dombey, the head of the National Association of Home Health and Hospice, has the details. Healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel checks in with the RAC report. Also in today's Monitor Monday, the American Medical Association and United Health are working together on new codes for social determinants of health. We'll have a special report when Alan Fink Samnick joins us later in the broadcast. And healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. We have much news to report this morning, but we begin with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 RCM. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. I'm really excited to be on the show today with Judith Stein, the Executive Director of the Center for Medicare Advocacy. The Center is a fantastic organization that truly advocates for all Medicare beneficiaries. They're also supportive of strengthening traditional Medicare and not shifting all Medicare beneficiaries to Medicare Advantage, as seems to be the objective of the current administration. Now, Judith will be discussing the lawsuit about observation and patient rights. I won't go into details about the case, but let me note that the most recent decision in the case is only 50 pages. And unlike many legal documents, it can actually be understood by non-lawyers. And be prepared to be impressed with the judge's understanding of the rules. I wish Judge Shea would preside over all Medicare appeals. We then have fair decisions and a system that works. I've asked Emily to put the, the decision in the handout section if you're interested in reading it. Now, why do these lawsuits happen? Patients in the hospital are sick, and they're more concerned with their medical condition than their status. But I think the utilization review team members need to do a better job of communicating with our patients. Sure, patients are given the moon if they're observation, or the important message from Medicare if they're admitted as an inpatient, or both forms if they go to one of those several hospitals I visited that think that that's the solution to not missing any patient, which, by the way, it isn't. Um, but no one ever reads those forms except the family member whose turn it is to sit by the bedside at night. And because the hospital Internet is so slow, they have to choose between reading the hospital paperwork or the March 2015 issue of People magazine from the waiting room. Communication is especially important for those who are placed observation and whose stay passes the second midnight without inpatient admission. Now, why is this happening? We all know there's many reasons why you can't admit a patient for the second midnight. The patient has no ride home, the doctor rounds late, the hospital doesn't offer a needed test on weekends. These are all common and may result in an extra day or two. Let's tell the patient. But what happens all too often is there are observation patients who have no medical reason at all to remain in the hospital, but there's no place for them to go, so they stay for days or weeks. They can't afford a nursing home, they have no family or caregiver, their house is uninhabitable. 
These patients or their representative need to be told that they are being kept in the hospital for custodial care and that they're not being admitted as an inpatient. They need to be told that that's the law. They can't be admitted as an inpatient solely to get them into a nursing home and have Medicare pay for it. We need to continue to find a safe discharge plan, but also continue to communicate about their status. I think if we all do a better job communicating, then these cases that lead to years of litigation and potentially another CMS-mandated form and a new appeal process would not occur. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC Report, it's Healthcare Attorney Nicole Amanda. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, and I'm so excited to be reporting on this. Case law is changing, and in case law is changing, the tides are turning in favor of the providers. In the past, providers who were undergoing premature recoupments, which I consider a premature recoupment is a recoupment before an impartial hearing, they're getting denied injunctions in the court they were denied requests for suspensions of the premature recoupments. September 2018 was the sixth case that has been determined in the provider's favor. Accident Injury and Rehabilitation PC, doing business as Advantage Health and Wellness versus Azar, is a clear example. It's the sixth lawsuit in which the provider has prevailed in obtaining an injunction against the government. As most of you know, there's the requirement in Medicaid and Medicare for a single state agency, and CMS is that single state agency. However, in 2006, the MACs came into play. If a MAC denies a claim, there's a five-level administrative review process. The third level is the most important because that's before an impartial ALJ. The timing is supposed to be at the first level with the max, 60 days. At the second level with the QICs, 60 days. And at the third level with the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals, 90 days. You're also allowed to escalate if it ends up being too long, but still at the third level, they start recouping because it is discretionary and the law allows the government to start recouping after the second level. So in this case, Advanced Med, who's the Z-Pick for South Carolina, looked into claims for the past four years into a chiropractic practice. Prior to 2015, this chiropractic practice earned over $6.8 million, and Medicare comprised 31% of its practice. Advanced Med came in, and found $5,627,000 of Part B claims and $1,021,000 in durable medical equipment claims. The practice appealed. At levels one and two, they were denied. At the third level, CMS began withholding the alleged recoupment. In order to get an injunction, you have to show a likelihood of success on the merits, irreparable harm, balance of the equities, and public interest. And you have to try to explain that you want to keep the status quo, i.e., 
the fact that you weren't getting suspended, you weren't getting recouped prior to this recoupment. This case had many important points. Number one, it stated that you can enter in new evidence after the first and second levels. Number two, you have a right to your Medicare reimbursements. Number three, at the ALJ level, the statutory 90 days is not mandatory. Number four, the max and the quicks are biased. The case actually came out and said that. And number five, 66% reversed at the ALJ level. The interesting fact also is that the court did not require a bond in this case. This is the start, hopefully, of case law going in the provider's direction. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner of the Potomac Law Group and is a member of the Rack Monitor Editorial Board. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from William Dombey, Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, and our special guest, Judith Stein. This is Monday, it's April the 8th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. What will earning the Certified Coding Specialist Physician-Based Credential do for you? By earning a HEMA's industry regarding CCSP credential, you can improve earning potential, expand career advancement opportunities, position yourself as a leader and role model in the industry, connect with a strong network of HEMA-certified peers, and much more. AHIMA's virtual exam prep makes it easy to prepare on your schedule and sit for the exam with confidence. Get your questions answered at the next interactive learning session taking place on October 16th. Demonstrate experience and explore opportunities at ahima.org slash certification. Thanks, Clark. There's a must-see webcast about how a team approach is necessary when appealing clinical validation denials, and it features a friend of this broadcast, Dr. Juliet Ugarte Hopkins. Now, this webcast is Thursday. It's April the 18th. You can save 40 bucks when you enter the coupon code MONDAY. And now for the Monitor Monday Risky Business segment, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, i got to ask you again, what's risky today? Well, Chuck, I've got another counterintuitive risk this week. It's the risk of confidentiality or secrecy. There are certainly times when keeping information confidential is a positive, but in the land of compliance, the tendency towards secrecy can create problems. I was recently working with a physician group where the local hospital made a significant refund of the facility fee because it concluded that a physician's care wasn't medically necessary. The hospital retained a lawyer and hired a consultant to review medical records, and the refund was a result of their review. Now, my client, who employs the physician who provided the services in question, learned about the situation when an administrator casually mentioned the refund, apparently by accident. The client then conducted its own investigation because it figured that if the services of the clinic shouldn't have been billed, or if the, if the services were unnecessary, the clinic shouldn't have billed for the professional component. By the end of the review, I became convinced that the hospital had acted prematurely refunding a large sum of money it was perfectly entitled to keep. The hospital had skipped the step of discussing the situation with the physician before opting to refund. Um, Because the hospital has been playing its cards so close to the vest, I don't really know all of its thinking. But it appears to me that the hospital decided 
that the physician was providing services improperly, and then it sort of jumped to making the assumption that talking to the physician was pointless. I assume they thought something like, well, since he does unnecessary care, he's a fraud, so why talk to him? Whatever their rationale, they consulted neither him nor the clinic. Uh, the hospital made it clear that they had been worried about the situation leaking out. Uh, the bottom line is the hospital elected to refund without conducting a thorough investigation. Now, I see that a fair amount, but I recommend entirely the opposite approach. Once you're planning to refund money to the government, the need for secrecy is quite small. You're already going to tell the government what's going on. You might as well turn over every rock and consider every possibility to determine whether there are any arguments you can use to avoid the refund. Once you're making a refund, you can shout the facts from the rooftops without materially increasing your risk. Sure, there's a theoretically a, a possibility that someone can bring a false claims case based on information related to the refund, but it's pretty unlikely that it would get much traction. The Public Disclosure Bar prevents False Claims Act cases in situations where the relator learned of the information through publicly available information. Moreover, after you've done a voluntary refund, it's pretty difficult for someone to characterize your intent as improper. The bottom line is that the benefit of getting as much information as you can far outweighs the risk that the investigation may leak. Moreover, when you're doing the right thing, it's better if everyone sees it. Transparency establishes a culture of, of confidence in compliance. So there's really only one big risk associated with candor during an investigation, and that's the danger of defaming individuals who are involved. But that risk can be managed by making it quite clear that you don't know what's going on and by trying to keep mentioning of names to a minimum. So Chuck, the Monroe's thing that all the people tell me so, before asking, somewhat cynically, what do all the people know? Now, it's true that when it comes to living your life, I think it's best not to place too much weight on the opinion of the masses. But investigations are different. You might learn something. You don't know what all the people know until you ask them. And ask them, you should. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. A new development for home health was announced last week by CMS. Here now with the details is longtime Monitor Monday contributor William Dombey. Good morning, Bill. What do we need to know? Good morning, Chuck. Uh, what we need to know is this is a new era in Medicare, and it's an era that may spread to other provider sectors beyond home health. But on April 3rd, Medicare announced uh, the start of the Review Choice Demonstration Program for Home Health Services. This was in the mix for a number of months, and it's the successor to what we call pre-claim review that took place in the second half of 2016 and first quarter of 2017. Uh, with the announcement, CMS has indicated that it will start this new successor to pre-claim review 
uh, on June 1st of 2019, and that providers in Illinois will be the first target. The Illinois home health agencies will begin a choice selection period on April 17th, and that will continue to May 16th. The choices are the following three. One, 100% pre-claim review. That's the equivalent of a prior authorization program. The second choice is post-payment review at 100%. That's obviously a program that does deliver payment to the provider, but puts the provider at risk of having to repay it with 100% claims subject to review. The third choice is not really a choice. It's post-payment review, but with a 25% payment rate reduction. Uh, The post-payment review would be conducted by a RAC, a recovery audit contractor. Our view on the third choice is that if any provider of home health selects that, they should be reported to the the FBI, the Inspector General's Office, and any other anti-fraud unit because a 25% rate reduction should not be something any home health agency can absorb. Illinois providers with pre-claim review discovered that most of the difficulty was around documentation, serious documentation issues that led to a 60% rejection of claims in the first instance, and we don't know whether the Illinois providers are really ready to go for the next round. Following the Illinois effort, CMS would look to expand it into four additional states. Those states are Ohio, Texas, North Carolina, and Florida. Those states will get at least 60 days' notice before the choice selection period starts in in each of those four states. So CMS is going to likely see how it runs in Illinois, fix out any kind of operational problems before they expand it further into the additional states. What do we have as a recommendation for home health agencies in Illinois? and actually a recommendation all across the country is to sharpen their game on documentation to make sure that the physician's record will establish benefit eligibility and that the home health agency record is consistent with the physician's record. Main areas of concern, homebound status and skilled care need, those two areas really need to be beefed up documentation-wise from the physician's office because the Illinois experience with pre-claim review demonstrated doctors just do not do a good job of documenting homebound status or skilled care need. Now, is this the forerunner of prior authorization across the entire Medicare program? We'll have to wait and see, but in this year's budget from the White House, uh, there is authorization to initiate prior authorization throughout Medicare. I want to add one other topic before we part, uh, and that is something to put a footnote in to think about for the near future. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovations have announced that they are going to experiment with a carve-in of the Medicare hospice benefit into certain Medicare Advantage plans beginning in 2021. These plans are the VBID plans, a special value-based purchasing type approach. Details to come, Chuck, uh, most likely we'll hear some more this week as CMS plans a webinar. So thanks for the opportunity to join you today. Thanks, Bill, very much. That was William Dombey. Bill Dombey is the president of the National Association of Home Care and Hospital. Bill, thanks very much for being on our broadcast. As we mentioned at the top of this broadcast, the American Medical Association and United Healthcare are working together on developing new codes. These are codes for the social determinants of health. With more on this developing story is Alan Fink-Sandick. Good morning, Alan. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody. 
Last week was exciting in the world of social determinants of health reimbursement. Well, first, CMS released their 2020 rates, and as expected, Medicare Advantage and Part T plan supplemental benefits will expand in several areas. Increased focus on care outside of hospitals translates to increased reimbursement, promoting resources, programs, and services that minimize readmissions, plus enhance population wellness, clearly a goal of all. Now, traditionally, where CMS goes, private insurers follow, but with the social determinants, it prevents the trend is reversed. Close to 90% of insurers, if not more at this point, address non-clinical needs to enhance health outcomes from funding for gaps in transportation, food insecurity, GED prep classes and tests, employment plus. Some of you may have heard my last report on Blue Cross Blue Shield starting food delivery in regions around Dallas and Chicago in expansion of their Blue Cross Blue Shield Institute zip code project. Now, in 2020, CMS will pay for services that promote healthy home environments like air filters and fans, plus two main social determinants, food insecurity and access to care, a.k.a. transportation. Reimbursement expansion will go to meal delivery, transportation to the grocery store, nutrition services, and coverage for non-emergency medical transportation. One in three Medicare dollars is spent on diabetes, one of the costliest chronic diseases. Diabetes education will advance to outpatient programs and community health facilities, as well as increase in the number of education hours from 10 to 16 hours and the number of follow-up sessions from two to six hours. There will be greater attention to the opioid crisis with supplemental benefits for patients with opioid use disorders and cost-sharing reductions for patients with chronic pain. Medicare Part D plans will offer a minimum of one overdose reversal drug on their low-cost sharing tier to improve access to medications. Telehealth reimbursement will expand for remote patient monitoring under some circumstances. Now, social cohesion and isolation are major social determinants, especially for children and adults with disabilities and adults receiving services under the long-term services and supports programming. Telehealth services help address this determinant. The other excitement, yes, you've been waiting for it, came with the AMA announcing alignment with United Healthcare. The goal is to advocate with CMS for 23 new ICD-10Z codes to address the social barriers to care. United Healthcare already joined with NCQA and the National Association of Community Health Centers to push CMS for code expansion of food and transportation. The expanded ICD-10 recommendations encompass access to nutritious food, appropriate housing, transportation, expanded payment for medications and utilities, and finally, caregiver needs, an area that was surprisingly not included in the past. If CMS adopts the codes, they will start fiscal year 2020 on October 1st. My best guess is we'll see a mega roster of ICD-10Z codes by next year. Watch for the next installment of As the Social Determinants Turn. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. That was nationally recognized expert on social determinants of health, Ellen Fink-Samnick. And Ellen has written a new book on the subject entitled The Social Determinants of Health, Case Management's Next Frontier. It's published by HC Pro, and it comes with a foreword by our very own Dr. Ron Hirsch. The use and abuse of observation and outpatient status is expected to have another day in court. Looks like the landmark class action lawsuit is going to go to trial soon. 
Reporting this developing story is Judith Stein. She has been the lead counsel or co-counsel in numerous federal lawsuits challenging the improper Medicare policies. Ms. Stein is the founder of the Center for Medicare Advocacy, and she joins us now. Good morning, Judith. What is important and what do we need to know about this case? This case is known as Alexander versus Azar. It's a nationwide class action brought by individual Medicare beneficiaries who, for one reason or another, were placed on observation status in the hospital. And as you all know, that means that even though they were in the hospital for many days, probably receiving the same kind of care, often the, uh, by the same providers as the person next door to them in a double room, and maybe their next door neighbor is an inpatient, they were considered outpatients on observation status. This is really a billing code, and what's important is that it bills to Medicare under Part B, not under Part A. And because it is considered outpatient services, even for people who are in the hospital over more than two midnights, indeed many, many days, this is not considered an inpatient stay. And as a consequence, among other things, people who need to go to a nursing home after an, an, a hospital stay um, often find that they cannot receive any Medicare coverage for that nursing home stay because Medicare requires a three-day inpatient hospital stay in order to cover the uh, following nursing home care. When a person is in the hospital for three days or more, but that's considered outpatient observation status, they cannot get their nursing home benefit, even though they've paid into and are entitled to it under the, by meeting the Medicare criteria. Alexander V. Azar, as I say, is a national class action. It means that it applies to individuals who have Medicare all over the country. One of our plaintiffs was forced to pay $30,000 for post-hospital skilled nursing facility care. Another, a 93-year-old World War II veteran, $10,000 for post-nursing home care, post-hospital nursing home care. And one individual, because she did not have Part B, which you may know is optional, and about 10% of Medicare beneficiaries do not have it, was stuck with the entire hospital bill of $30,000. Now, we brought a case eight years ago to challenge this policy of observation status and to seek notice and appeal. During the course of this eight years, Congress did uh, pass a law that requires hospitals to give a notice. Remarkably, they call that the moon. So they have to give the moon, the Medicare outpatient observation notice, to people who are in hospital uh, and considered outpatient observation. The remarkable thing about that is that under uh, the law, most always when you have a right to a notice, you also have a right to a hearing, to appeal. But in observation status, you now get a notice, but there's nothing you can do about it. There is no appeal. We are seeking the right to appeal in this case. And in a 50-page decision issued two weeks ago, <clears throat> the judge found that there is evidence sufficient to allow a reasonable fact finder, he says, to conclude that the two midnight rule, that is that the patient is going to expect it to be in the hospital for more than two midnights, is meaningfully challenged by the government and not the medical judgment of the doctors. As a consequence, the judge found that there is what's known as state action, that the government is really making the decision through CMS 
not the individual's doctor. And therefore, among other things, he denied all the government's motions to stop this case. Right now, we have a trial date in August. We hope to get a hearing right for Medicare beneficiaries. Interestingly, hospitals are right now allowed to appeal these uh, observation status uh, determinations, but patients can't. I also want to bring it to your attention that um, uh, two weeks ago, Joe Courtney from Connecticut, uh, Representative Joe Courtney from Connecticut and Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio um, dropped a new bill called the Improving Access to Medicare Coverage Act of 2019. This is, for the third time, an attempt to get Congress to pass a bill that would count all time in the hospital, no matter how it's billed, either observation or inpatient, towards that three-day stay so that people will not be robbed of their nursing home stay should they be put on observation status. And finally, I tell folks that we have a ton of material about this observation status issue, the Alexander case, and myriad other issues that are matter to Medicare beneficiaries. We do a lot of work, as Bill knows, about home health care, which we're very concerned about, on our website, medicareadvocacy.org. And we hope we can help you there and through the advocacy we do on behalf of Medicare beneficiaries. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ms. Stein. That was Judith Stein. Ms. Stein is the founder of the Center for Medicare Advocacy. Thank you very much for being with us. Hope you come back again soon. Now it's time for the Modern Monday Q&A, and once again, here is David Glazer. Hi, Chuck. Well, and I think this is a good time. Maybe Dr. Hirsch can reinforce the message he delivered, but picking up on what Judy Stein's valuable point no one who's in the hospital for three days should ever be. Once, once you hit that second midnight, you're an inpatient, period. There is no situation where you should be on observation status past that second midnight. I don't know, Dr. Hirsch, if you want to comment on that at all. Remember, for every Medicare rule, there's exceptions. And we have to remember that convenience nights do not count. Well, and I would say a convenience night wouldn't even count for observation, really. I mean, if you don't need to be there, you don't need to be there. Well, I'll be speaking about that at the NARI National Conference in October on how to bill for observation that's not medically necessary. I would say if, if the person doesn't have to be in, doesn't need any medical care, but if they need to be, if they need yep. medical care and they're in the hospital for two midnights, they're in. So, uh, Absolutely. Uh, Very Chuck, good. I, I think we're done arguing. We'll turn it over to you next. I think we agree. We'll turn it back to you. You're right. Thanks very much. The Inconvenient Truth is we got to go right now, and that's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. And I want to thank you very much for being with us, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Bill Dombey, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink, Samnick, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and, of course, Judith Stein, the founder of the Center for Medicare Advocacy. Thanks again for being with us, and thanks for starting off your week with us this morning. We look forward to your being with us next Monday for another live edition of Monitor Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. <laughs>